0: At this time, the children may be dismissed for preschool and children's church. And I'll invite everyone else to find Acts chapter 2 in your Bible or your phone or in a pew Bible near you or your iPad or whatever other space-age device you may have on you. Acts chapter 2. We are rounding out our sermon series about being the church. We have been studying Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 uh, for several weeks now. This is a portrait of the first church. You've seen first Baptist church of this town or that town, first Advent Christian church of this town or that town. This is the first church, period. So as we've been studying this, we've seen the church before any uh, human traditions before history was added. This is pure, pure portrait of the church. I'd like to begin today's sermon by stepping back and taking a look at this whole portrait because we've been looking at individual brush strokes for several weeks now. And I'm going to read these verses, Acts two, 2, verses 42 through 47. And as I do, I just want you to try to take in what this church looked like just be reminded of it and then we'll look at the verses that we're going to focus on today so I'll invite you you can just remain seated and you can follow along up there in your bibles or just listen to God's word and they the first christians 3000 plus and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And here's the verses we're going to focus on today. Let's add these brush strokes to the canvas, the portrait of the church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now we're going to focus on verses 46 and 47, actually one slice within those verses, but the, the structure of those verses is a little bit difficult to determine. Um, I don't want to get too geeky on you, but the original language Greek is a little unclear about how it should be structured, and that's why your translations may have looked a little different from mine and used some different words. So I thought it'd be helpful to just give you an outline, I believe, of, of how this verse should be structured. Uh, the the force of it, the focus of it, is on the fact that what they were doing was daily and steady and united. So, uh, kind of a banner over everything in these verses. Just remember that it was daily, steadfastly, and united together that they did these things. It was daily, steadfastly, united together that they went to the temple together and that they went into their homes together. So... Overarching everything they were doing, you can picture it being basically day by day, every day of the week they were involved in these activities. They were steadfastly committed to it, giving themselves to it, devoted to it, and they were united together of one mind. And where did all this being the church take place? It took place in the temple and in homes. So what they did in the temple had to do with the teaching that we talked about early on. What they did in the homes, he actually mentions here, They broke bread together in the homes with glad and generous hearts. And this gets into what I would like to focus on today. So we know that they did it daily. They did it steadfastly. They did it in unity. They were the church in the temple and in their homes, both public and private, both organized in the temple and organic in the homes. And that they broke bread together in the homes with glad and generous hearts. Now, I'll bet some of your translations do not use the word generous. Some of them do. Some of them probably do not. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he mentions two activities that infiltrated all of this, praising God and having favor with people. Okay? So maybe this isn't helpful to you, but it's helpful for me to see how it actually all connects together. We are going to focus on their quality of heart, that they were glad and generous-hearted, and that they praised God. Because we've already covered a lot of that other ground. So this is the focus of our message today. And before we dig into it, would you pray with me? And let's ask God to massage the truth of his word into our hearts and our minds and really change us into his church. Let's pray. Father, we're about to spend some time together meditating on just a couple of points from your word Lord, please open our minds and our hearts to it. Please speak through your word. Please mold us into your church more and more. Mold us as individuals into the members of your body, your church, that you would have us to be. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help me to serve your people well. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that the church is joyful. The church is joyful. From the beginning, joy is our heritage as the church, and joy is our destiny as the church. The church is joyful. Now, I chose the word joy for my main point, even though many of our translations use the word glad, But we don't use the word glad with any real depth today. You use the word glad when you're going down 485 going one direction. And you see a ton of traffic coming the other direction at a standstill. And you turn to whoever's with you and say, I'm glad we're not going that way. You're glad. But it's a mild emotion when you use it that way. You're not wild with joy. You're not ecstatic. You're not exhilarated with passionate happiness. See, that's more what this word actually means. It means wild joy, ecstatic delight, exultation, exhilaration. So it's more than our idea of, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm glad. It's more than that. There's nothing mild about this. This is more like in Luke chapter 114 when God comes to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a baby. And they have been barren and they are of advanced age. And God says that they're going to have a baby. And He, they use this word there of the emotions that everyone felt when John the Baptist was prophesied to be born. Some of you know that kind of joy, that wild joy, that exaltation, that exhilaration. Some of you know even from that specific experience of having tried to have a child for a long time and not been able to. And then the Lord blesses you. That's what he's referring to here. And that is the sort of joy that is our heritage and our destiny as the church. The church is joyful like that. Now, I want you to take a minute and just let that soak in. This is not Hallmark greeting card sentimentality. This is not just a warm hug, you know, don't worry, be happy. This truly is in the DNA of the church, joy. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and you are joyful even right now. You bebopped on in here full of joy. Others among us are not so joyful. Some of you may say, well, I'm part of the church, and I'm not joyful. I need to clarify a few things about this. I'm not saying that all Christians are all joyful all the time. I'm not saying that all Christians are all joyful all the time. And if you're not joyful, you must not be a Christian. We're not going to make joy one of the um, criteria to be a member of Doolin's Grove. You've got to be wearing a big goofy grin all the time to be one of us. I am saying that normally Christians will grow in joy over time. Normally Christians will grow Enjoy joy over time. That, that is the normal state. Just like normally a child will grow. Normally joy is one of the things that will grow in a Christian. And I get that from many places. But for one Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5. It says that the fruit of the spirit. Is love. Joy. Peace. Patience. And it goes on and lists others. But part of the fruit of having the Holy Spirit. Of being a Christian. Is joy. And Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. So, if joy is not growing over time, that does mean that there's something amiss. Okay, the, the trajectory of a Christian is jagged. We're not, when you're saved, you're not immediately perfected and immediately have all the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. And you're immediately not sinning and you're completely loving, completely joyful, completely at peace. It doesn't happen instantly. And it doesn't even happen smoothly. The the Christian trajectory is jagged. You grow in joy and then maybe you have a, a dip for a while. And everybody's trajectory is different. But over time, the whole picture should show an increase. Should, normally. This is the normal state of things. Okay? Now, I know we all have many different experiences with joy and depression and anxiety and just darkness and, um, you know, bits of happiness and bits of despair It's a complicated subject anytime you get into emotions. But this is the normal case. This is what we should generally expect. Now, maybe if you are not experiencing joy right now, it may be that there are sins in your life. It may be that you have sinned and you're experiencing consequences of it, including disconnection from God. It may be that there's things you need to confess. It may be that you have confessed and repented, but the consequences remain. It may be that you've messed up relationships because of it, and that causes a lack of joy. It may not be any of that. It may just be a season of darkness that we all walk through. And it could be any length of time. It could be a 30-minute season of darkness, and it can be a 30-year season of darkness. It might just be a hard time doesn't mean you're not a Christian, doesn't mean you're not the church. It could be that you're in the midst of some sort of spiritual battle. We do have an enemy that does not want this for us. And we have to fight, we have to fight with faith and the word of God. It may be that you're in the midst of some very specific, acute, circumstantial suffering that makes joy, right now, nearly impossible some horrible illness, some, some terrible catastrophe uh, within your family. It may be that you're in some temporary circumstances that make joy very, very, very difficult to see right now. That's temporary. You're moving through it. It may be that you have more of a melancholy personality. I put myself into that category. Um, you know, I, when I read wild joy, ecstatic delight... I mean, that looks to me like someone cartwheeling through a field of daisies, just screaming with excitement. And I've never been like that. It may just be your personality experiences and expresses joy differently. So I'm just saying, it's not black and white. It's not, you're joyful, good, you're part of the church. You're not joyful, you're clearly not a Christian, something's horribly wrong. So I'm not saying either that you should make being joyful your goal. Remember, what we're studying here is descriptive, not prescriptive. So it is a, a history of what the church looked like, what our DNA looks like, but it's not a prescription of you've got to be exactly like this all the time. I don't think that you should make joy your goal. I think joy is a byproduct. Remember what the early church was devoted to? What did they devote themselves to? They did not devote themselves to feeling joyful. No, they received Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and they were transformed, and they devoted themselves to the teaching, to gobbling up everything they could of what Jesus said, and then living in light of it. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to real deepening relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread coming together around a a shared meal, acknowledging their shared need and their shared provider. And they've devoted themselves to the prayers, communing with God. They devoted themselves to those things. They did not devote themselves to trying to feel joyful. So I want you to see that joy is a part of the DNA of the church. It is inherent in being a Christian. We're going to grow in this fruit of joy. You may not feel like it right now, but you will. As you follow Christ. But don't make that your, your goal. You know, I've, I've told you before, you don't walk by an apple tree as it's growing an apple and hear the apple tree just straining with all its might. It fruit comes naturally. We'll, we will pursue Jesus Christ. And thereby, Lord willing, over time grow in joy. They were seeking the kingdom and joy was added unto them. Now, why be joyful? I want to read to you a passage from Ephesians. This is actually what the youth and I studied during Sunday school. So ask them any questions you may have about this passage, and they can give you all the answers perfectly verbatim from their memory from Sunday school. Actually, I only see one of you in here. I must have really bored them this morning. Okay, this is a lengthy passage. I just want you to let it wash over you and remind you of reasons we have to be joyful as Christians, okay? Yes, circumstantially, maybe even physically and emotionally, you don't feel reasons to be joyful, but these are objective truths. If you are in Christ, you have these things. This is from Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with everything, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, in Christ, spiritually speaking, you have everything, every spiritual blessing. Specifically, He mentions He chose you and He is going to, He's making you holy and blameless. So you're free from all that stuff that would cause you guilt and shame and embarrassment and condemnation and ultimately damnation. You're out from under that. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And it goes on, and we could go on. In Jesus Christ, you have God's grace lavished upon you. And you can be joyful. You have permission to be joyful. I think some of us may feel like we we can't because we've got responsibilities and we've got to be sober minded and we've got to hold these things up and it's up to us. We can, can be joyful. We can be like kids on Christmas morning. So the bottom line is this. Expect that as we grow over time into the church, we will grow increasingly joyful as a people. The second thing I want you to notice is that the church is simple. Okay, I, I use this word simple and it was really hard to figure out what word to use here because the word translated in my translation, generous, in some of yours, simple, some of yours may say sincere, some may say humble, it actually means not stony ground. I think I had, yeah, it, it actually means not stony ground. And it's only used here in the whole Bible. So I have no way of knowing what in the world he's talking about. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with wild joy and not stony hearts. What is he talking about? Like I, like I mentioned, some of the translators think that it, it might mean humble hearts. Some think that it might mean simple hearts. Some think that it might mean sincere hearts. Some think that it might mean generous hearts. But there's not any real consensus. I think it must have been some kind of figure of speech. But here's what I think, for what it's worth. I think that it basically means useful. I think that if a ground is not stony... It could be useful in the sense that you can travel on it as in a road that doesn't have a bunch of big loose stones in the way there's no obstacles it's smooth you can use it or if the ground is stony in the sense that it's hard and you can't use it to plant and grow both senses i think that it probably means in in some way useful They didn't have obstacles keeping them from using their hearts They didn't have hardness keeping them from using their hearts. Jesus speaks elsewhere about making our hearts useful again, giving us new hearts, soft hearts that aren't hard anymore. From sinful hearts to righteous hearts. I like the translation sincere, and I almost went with that. Because sincere means free from pretense, proceeding from genuine feelings. Because of Jesus' work, we don't have to short-circuit our hearts before it reaches our our mouths and how we speak or our actions. We don't have to be ashamed of who we really are because that's what the heart refers to, your inner self, the real you. The you that only you know and God knows. That's what your heart is. So God's work does enable us to be sincere and live Genuinely from who we really are without having to guard ourselves and hide ourselves and pretend to be what we want people to think we are rather than just being ourselves. So sincere may work, but simple makes sense because Jesus always had this effect on people. And some of us are stony hearted because we are just crushed with burdens And Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of us are stony hearted because we're just so completely and constantly distracted by busyness. And I get emphatic on this point because I think that I'm in this category often. To those of us in this situation, Jesus would say to us the same thing that he said to Martha. You know, he, he had a meal with, or he spent some time with two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha was just busy and had to clean the house up and had to get the meal prepared, had to get the table set, and there's so much to do. And then after she got that done, she had to do this and this and this and this. And Mary was just sitting there. Just sitting there when all this work needed to get done. Just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Only one thing really is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Some of us are stony hearted because we're worried about Everything, finances, future, just our lives. To us, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, if we really listen to Jesus' teaching, it has a deeply simplifying effect on our lives. You know, there's a big push for minimalism um, in, in decorating and just decluttering and scheduling. Minimalism is very popular right now. And the desire that makes us love the idea of minimalism is the desire that should lead us to Jesus Christ because ultimately he is the only one that can simplify all of this mess that we have. Do we dare to actually believe that he will? Do we dare believe that we can actually, with our real burdens that really could be catastrophic if we let them slip, that we can really hand those over to him and he give us his yoke and it be light? Do we really believe that of of all of our tasks and all of our responsibilities, there's actually only one thing that's necessary, and that's to be with Jesus and to follow him? Could it really be that if we'll just seek first the kingdom of God, that all these things, what we'll wear, what we'll eat, our lives will be added unto us? Could it really be that simple? Jesus says it is. And I think that as we grow into the church, we will grow both in joy and in this sort of simplicity. I think the the stones will get cleared out of our hearts. We'll be able to live sincerely from our hearts, who we are, and we'll be able to simply and joyfully praise God. And that brings me to my last point. The church is joyful. The church is simple. The church is not stony ground. And the church praises God. Now, I doubt that this comes um, as any big surprise to you. This has always been a part of church. Praising God, like I mentioned before, is the first of these two overarching activities that just sort of encompasses everything that the church was doing. They praised God. Being the church means praising God. Praising God is being the church. Some churches have praise teams that come up here and sing, and I'm telling you, you are the praise team. The church is the praise team. You can't be a part of the church without being on the praise team because this is what it is. This is what it's all about. I don't know if you saw in Ephesians when I read all those blessings that God gave us, but three times he repeats in that chapter. He did all this for the praise of his glory. That's the goal. The goal isn't just for you and me to be forgiven and cleansed of our sin and receive salvation. It's for us to be forgiven and cleansed from our sin and given salvation so that we will praise God. That's, that's the purpose of everything. That's why you were created. What's the number one commandment? Yes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. Praise is one of these churchy words. I wonder if you've ever thought about what it means. The dictionary definition, which Isaac Walsh actually came very close to nailing when I asked what does praise mean in Sunday school, is laudatory address. Praise is a laudatory address. But in layman's terms, praise is enjoying and communicating the goodness of God. You know, you're free to enjoy the goodness of God. I know you feel like you've got to be nose to the grindstone, but you can just enjoy how good God is. That's what these leaves are about that I'm about to turn to in just a minute. Enjoying and then communicating the goodness of God. And this is not some foreign thing. You do this all the time. Just not always with God, but with other things. We are praise machines. I looked on Facebook to find some examples of praise, and I didn't even have to scroll down before I found examples of praise on Facebook. Let me tell you three examples. One person, Tina Presley actually, says, I am so, with five O's, I am so thankful That today is Friday, and OMG, tomorrow is Saturday, triple exclamation mark. That's praise. And there's nothing wrong. It's good. It's, It's good to enjoy the weekend. But that is praise. Enjoying the goodness of the weekend and communicating about it. So thankful. Triple exclamation mark. Okay, another one. This is a friend of mine who doesn't live anywhere near here. Um, this, this gal's brother's name is Craig. Apparently Craig really loves the Apple store and they were in the Apple store. So she posted this, Craig's favorite place. One, two, three, four, five, six exclamation marks. Craig's favorite place and then tagged it with Craig at the Apple store. That's praise. Enjoying the goodness of the Apple store and communicating about it. Okay, one more. These are some friends of ours who posted a picture of their adorable little girl uh, in her Halloween costume, which was a baker costume, like, you know, baking hat, not like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, like in the kitchen baking type baker, wooden spoon, a little bit of flour on her face. It was very cute. Um, And it just said, their last name is Byram. And it said, Baker Byram, just one exclamation mark this time. Baker Byron and a picture of their adorable daughter. That's praise. They're enjoying the goodness of their beautiful little girl. And they're sharing it. They're communicating about it. Now, why is it that we do that? Why is it not sufficient to look at our little girl in her Halloween costume and just enjoy it and leave it at that? I'm not, many of you posted pictures from yourselves or your children in Halloween costume. Why do we do that? Why, why do we go to the Apple store, those of us who love that kind of thing, and why don't we just enjoy it and let it be the end of it? Why do we have to talk about it? Why do we have to put it on Facebook? Yet the weekend is going to come, Friday, and Saturday are here. Why do we have to, what makes us want to put it on Facebook and just let the world know? It's because that is innate in us. We are praisers. This is our function. This is our purpose. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in praising God. All the joy that we get from the weekend, from the Apple store, from our children is a shadow of the joy that we get from God when we really receive him. And all the joy we get from praising these things is a shadow of the joy that we get when we praise God. I have a quote for you from C.S. Lewis because he's smarter than me. And he's more eloquent than I am. And it really captures this idea. Follow this with me. He writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is in its appointed consummation. That's old school language. But the main idea, the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Our enjoyment of the weekend isn't complete until we've shared that with somebody. If if you, just last night, I, we were out running errands and I walked out of the store and looked up and there was this really sharp rainbow. And it was beautiful. Did anybody else see a rainbow last night? Okay. My uh, wife and kids were in the store. So I didn't just say, man, that's beautiful. I went in and I got them. I said, check out this rainbow. I want to share this with you. And the joy was like 10 times as much. Because I went and communicated it and I shared it. He continues, It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. A catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. Or we might say, fully to enjoy is to praise. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. God wants us to be joyful. He doesn't want us to be these stoic, frowning, downtrodden saints who are so holy that our lives are terrible. There's joy here. God is the ultimate Joy, And we get him through Jesus Christ. And we get to praise him. And that's what we're after with what we're about to do. That's what we're after this whole month of Thanksgiving. Christians should do Thanksgiving like no one else. Because we have so much to be thankful for. So we have a couple of ways ahead of us here in this service to praise God. The first one involves your leaf. Grab your leaf, I'm going to invite Jan, if she would, to come and play quietly. Grab your leaf, and I'm going to read to you from Psalm 150 to get your wheels turning. Every week, we're going to have a time when we meditate on things that we're thankful for. And today, I want you specifically to think about things you're thankful for related to God himself. Things that you would like to praise God for. And you can just write, thank you that you are such and such. Or however you want to put it. But let me read Psalm 150 to get your wheels turning. Now, I just want you to take your time and meditate on the goodness and glory of God. Psalm 150 says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Think with me about God, who He is, what He's done for you specifically. Think about His holiness. He's totally set apart. His wisdom, and how He has structured all of creation and history and His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. He's true. He is love. He is good. He is faithful. He's merciful. He does not give us the condemnation that we deserve. He is kind. He is patient. He is the ultimate father. He is just. We do not have to worry that injustice will go unanswered in this world because our God is just. He is righteous and he is gracious. Not only does he not give us the condemnation that we deserve, he gives us blessings that we do not deserve. We have a good God. So write down one or even two or three or whatever the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Reasons that you're thankful just for God and who he is. And as you complete that, I want to speak to you for just a moment about another form of praise. And we do it every week. And that's singing. Singing. Singing does not come naturally to me, but it's inescapably central to the church's praise of God. We're going to sing a song in just a few moments called Great Is Thy Faithfulness. Now, as you're finishing up thinking about God and writing down your thanksgivings on your leaf, preparing to put it in the offering plate that's about to pass, I just want to read you a little bit from this song we're about to sing so that you can sing this as praise. It says, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thy own dear presence, to cheer and to guide, strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. The idea of this song is that God is unchangingly faithful. Everything he has said and here, every promise he has made is fact. We can go to him and receive rest. We can focus on the one necessary thing. We can seek first the kingdom and expect him to add everything else we need to it. We can be joyful. We can be unstony stony ground. And we should praise him. So I'm going to pray now that God would enable us to worship in spirit and truth. And afterwards, our ushers are going to come forward and they're going to pass the offering plates. And I want you to praise God with how you give. Put your leaves in there. And as they pass the place, we will stand and we will sing, Great is thy faithfulness together. Let's pray together before we do so. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this portrait of the church in its infancy. Lord, may we be a joyful people, a simple, sincere-hearted people. Or may we experience the benefits of being your sons and daughters in Jesus Christ and enjoy you. And may our joy be made complete as we praise you, even now, in Jesus' name, amen.